Um, We're reading this evening from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting at verse 1, which you'll find on page 1154 in the Church Bibles. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. Thanks, Ellen. My name's Phil. I'm the associate minister here. It's lovely to have you with us, especially if you're here for the first time. I do hope you're able to to hang around afterwards. And we are in for our last little dive into this wonderful chapter. Let's pray as we turn to it together. Father God, we ask once again that you would give us minds that can understand and are willing to work hard, for we long to know the truth about you. But more than that, please would you transform our hearts so that our lives, our community, is a place that is marked by love. We ask this, that your glory might radiate out from us and that we might please you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're at the end of uh, our four-week study in 1 Corinthians 13, and in one sense it's been beautiful hearing that chapter read each week. Those words are amongst the most beautiful words ever written. But in another sense, um, reading those words each week has been a little bit like standing next to Leah when when you're singing. I don't know if um, Leah's away tonight or she's here, but um, it's lovely to stand next to Leah when uh, when she's singing because she's got an absolutely beautiful voice. It's no surprise that she sings professionally. But as enjoyable as it is to hear her voice, uh, it does make you rather aware of your own voice. And (laughs) and you say, oh, hearing you, I... ah." I, yeah, I, I sound a little bit like a warthog being electrocuted. This is, <laughs> oh, it's, and, and 1 Corinthians 13, is, it, it does a, it's a bit like that, as it shows this beautiful vision of love. It's, wow, isn't that beautiful? 
Eesh, I'm not quite so beautiful inside, am I? It, it sheds an uncomfortable light into the selfish reality of my heart. And I guess it does the same for you too. But actually, that uncomfortable light is good for us. That discomfort of where I am, what I'm like, is the first step in God helping to make us into the glorious beings that he longs for us to be. And so once more, if you want to become more than you are, let's open ourselves to God. Let's be humble and willing to listen as he speaks. Now, uh, just remind ourselves where we are. So the church in Corinth would have felt more than just uncomfortable as they heard these words being read out in church because this wasn't just a description of love. This was a rebuke aimed specifically at them. This is an apostolic slap delivered directly to their face because Paul is saying, look, you're an exceptionally gifted church, but you think because you're exceptionally gifted, that means you're spiritually mature and that God must be pleased with you. And so in this section from chapters 12 to 14, Paul is explaining, look, God gave you all these different gifts as a church, not so that you would feel fulfilled, so I can exercise my gifts, and even less so that you could be proud that I'm more gifted than you. God gave you those gifts so that you would build each other up and the church would grow. And at the heart of chapters 12 to 14 is chapter 13. Brilliant maths. What matters to God, we learn in chapter 13, is not how gifted we are, but whether we use those gifts to serve others in love. That's what matters to God. And so you can, uh, you can split the chapter up this way. This is what we've seen, verses uh, 1 to 3. I think we've got a little graphic. Love is essential, verses 4 to 8. Love is beautiful, verses 9 to 13. Love will last forever. So love is essential. Gifts without love are just worthless in God's eyes. You're better off not having the gifts. Seriously. Four to seven, love is beautiful. He sets out in those verses God's idea of love, and it is the noblest thing in the world. You could summarize, I think, the vision of love as a heartfelt, self-sacrificial concern for others expressed in concrete ways. He says, look, that's what love is, a heartfelt self-sacrificial concern for others expressed in concrete ways. Beautiful thing when you see it. And now in the final section, we learn love will last forever. This is Paul's final lesson for you and me. He says, look, loving each other may not look very impressive. It's very ordinary. Anybody can do it. But when you invest in love, you invest in something which will endure forever. We invest an awful lot of our lives on things which really don't last very long. We slog away revising for exams and never use the knowledge when the test's over. Sorry, those who've got exams starting this week. <laughs> it's the reality. Doesn't mean you shouldn't work hard. Um, you... You master new gadgets only for the tech to be obsolete in five years' time. You slave away at becoming wealthy. Don't take a penny of it with you into eternity. But when we seek to grow in love, we're working on, we're investing in something which will have value for all of eternity. Something which will never, ever lose its shine. 
Okay, three things. Love is eternal, gifts are temporary. The greatest insight now is just a shadowy glimpse. And love is greater even than faith or hope. The points are not particularly memorable, but thankfully the passage is. Right, verse 8. Love never fails. Do you know how long the feeling of being in love, that intoxicating feeling, lasts? I'll tell you, never more than a year or two, scientists tell us. And scientists know lots about love, apparently. But, uh, sorry, scientists, um, you know what I mean. It's a, it's a cheap, cheap shot, I know. But look, Paul's point, though, Paul's point is not, if you really love, your love will last a long, long time. That's not his point at all. He's not thinking about how long love lasts in this world. This whole last section is, is, is about an entirely different point, And we've got to get this clear. Otherwise, we'll never understand it. He's not arguing real love should last longer. He's talking about what lasts from this life into eternity, into the new age, when Jesus comes back, into heaven, the new perfected recreation. He's saying, what things from this world will last into the new age when Jesus returns to rule? And his point is, love will. Gifts won't, but love will. Verse 8 carries on. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Now, the words, uh, he uses different words for cease, pass away, um, be stilled. It's actually the same word that he uses each time. And it's a word that he's used in chapter 2, chapter 6. And again, he'll use in chapter 15, verses 24 to 26. And in every time, it's about things that are abolished or that just don't last when Jesus returns and everything is transformed. Now, it should be clear, when he says knowledge won't last... In verse 8, he means it's the gift of knowledge will cease when Jesus returns. Not knowledge itself. Uh, The gift of knowledge that he mentions in 12 verse 8. Because verse 12 of this chapter, he says we'll know stuff, we'll know fully even in God's eternal paradise. So it's not that knowledge will cease, it's the gift of knowledge. He's talking about gifts still at this point. So chapters 12 and 14 show that together with prophecy and tongues this gift of knowledge was one of the gifts the Corinthians really prized got really excited about felt really proud if they had and and really envious if they didn't have supernatural spirit given words of knowledge about God and about life well it would have been fantastically useful I mean at the time Paul's writing this is very, very early. We're talking early 50s AD. So there's almost no New Testament letters to help the church make sense of the Christian life. So supernatural words of knowledge from God would have been hugely important and valuable things. It's also easy to see why it's impressive. You know, hey, you know, what are you doing at church tonight? Uh, I'm serving the coffee. I'm receiving a word from Almighty God just for us. Ooh, I mean, that is quite impressive. Wow, you can see why people, wow. But Paul says, seriously, get over it. It's just a temporary gift. Why? Why is it, why is it a temporary thing? Well, the four at the beginning of verse nine explains. Four, because we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, that which is in part disappears. 
says, look, there'll be no need for the partial knowledge of God you get from these words of wisdom and prophecy and tongues because in the new age, we'll know God fully. Why would you hang on to something partial when you've got the full reality? Let me illustrate. Uh, Imagine it's 50 years ago and you fall in love with someone who's living overseas. It's the days before emails and videos and all those sort of video calls and that sort of things. The only means of communication is by post. Now, some of us here remember those days. Extraordinary, I know. You're, you're amongst fossils. Uh, you know, what would you do in days like that? You know, well, you painted caves and waited for people to invent fire and things. Where one of the things you did was you wrote letters. Amazing things. You can still do them today. And, uh, but every week, if you, if you have your, if your beloved lives abroad back in those days and your only means of communication is, is by mail, then, well, every Friday when they write and send their new letter and the postman brings the new letter, oh, it's a special day. You greet the postman with excitement and glee and, and that letter is a treasured, treasured thing. But when six months later your beloved moves to London and you get married, well, the letters stop because there right there with you you don't need the letter with the partial knowledge the letter gives you because you've got the whole person right there in heaven there'll be no need for prophecy or words of knowledge or tongues because God himself will be right there we won't need a, a word of knowledge from God we'll have God right there there'll be no need for bible study leaders no need for evangelists, no need for preachers. I can go back to being a lawyer. Even less need for them <laughs> in heaven, one thinks. Um, you see, word gifts are God's postal service to us while we're away from him. Vital now, wonderful now, treasured now. But there'll be no need for prophecy and preaching in heaven. But there will be love. Love is different. Love will grow and develop. It will look a bit different to down here. But it will endure. So Paul says that value love. Get a bit more excited about growing in love than growing in gifts. Because love will endure. Love will matter for eternity. Secondly, uh, the greatest insight now is just a shadowy glimpse. So Paul then gives us two images to press home the point that we should be less obsessed with gifts and much more focused on love. Now, the two images are children growing up and a hazy mirror. Verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, the big question is, what periods of time are childhood and adulthood representing here? And there is a bit of debate. But throughout these verses... The big difference in time periods that Paul has been talking about again and again are this age and the age to come when Jesus returns and the world is transformed. And I think it's simplest and clearest to take it that way too here. So Paul isn't saying, I now see things as an adult and so stop being so childish and value love more now. He's saying something far more radical than that. He's saying, look, lots of the ways we think about God now, we're going to have to put behind us when we get into heaven because they're so basic and childish. 
See, the Corinthians are jostling and, and arguing and promoting themselves over one another, all about their gifting. And those with the greatest prophetic insight are boasting about their spiritual maturity. And Paul says, well done. I mean, great. Well done you. You've got prophetic insight because God has given it to you. Not because you deserved it, but God gave it to you. So you know a little bit more than they do. Brilliant. One day, one day when Jesus returns... What you know then will be so extraordinary that what you think of now as exceptional insights will just be gaga, gaga, gaga. I mean, when you're six, if you have learned your seven times table and your younger brother has not, oh, you, you are a man of the world. You know things. You are a guru and you can impress and brag about your knowledge to your younger brother and some here have probably done so. But if that six-year-old grows up and eventually in the due course of time applies to do a PhD in astrophysics at Imperial, and during the interview with Professor Big Brain, his real name, at Imperial, the, the Professor Big Brain says, um, now, uh, could you please um, just demonstrate for me your grasp of mathematics? He said, seven times table. Test me on any of them. Six, seven, 42. Didn't even have to think. <laughs> Pretty impressive, isn't it? Huh? Hey, I can even do 13 sevens if you really want to ask me. Huh? 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 Mate, seriously, no one cares. I mean, that's just embarrassing. If you think that demonstrates mathematical proficiency as you study a PhD in astrophysics. I mean, it's just... And that's Paul's point here. All the knowledge of God that is given to us by the Holy Spirit, the real knowledge, one day in heaven we'll look back and think, my goodness, I never got past the seven times table on earth. Wow, how basic. I don't think this just applies to miraculous word gifts like prophecy. And Paul's emphasizing the particular gifts that caused division and boasting in Corinth. But his point must apply to all gifts. So it must apply to me and to those who teach the Bible. The greatest theologian of our day, their thousands of books and their expansive knowledge, the most gifted Bible study leader, the most insightful preacher, can just draw you deeper into a knowledge of Christ. Actually, we can go further than that. Paul himself. I mean... Paul, who wrote Romans, the greatest, most insightful theologians and Bible teachers in Christian history, compared to what all of us will know of God in eternity, their deepest insights will look like the seven times table compared with astrophysics. And if you think I'm pushing that, Read the end of Romans 11 and see what Paul says about his own knowledge of God. Oh, the depths, the riches, the wisdom of God. How unsearchable his judgment and his path beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the creator? One day, one day we will know God in a way so deep and rich that as we look at our lives today, we'll think, golly, I hardly knew anything. Now, the second image, I think, is similar. Verse 12. 
for now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now, there's an obvious point to be made, and there's a biblical reference to be pulled out. The obvious point is that when we see God face to face in heaven and encounter him without our sin-damaged minds, what we are able to grasp of him down here will, will seem hazy and obscure by comparison. It, it'll, we'll look back and think, gosh, it was as if I was, I was looking like at a reflection in dirty, rippling water. That was all I could really see. There's also a biblical reference. Paul's uh, alluding to an incident in the Old Testament. In Numbers 12, verses 6 to 8, God says, When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. It's an amazing thing to be a prophet. Amazing. But that gift is nothing like speaking face-to-face with God. Face-to-face is intimate. It's intense. Try looking someone in the face. Make sure it's someone you know. Otherwise, uh, they might get really weirded out. It's, It's hard to do for more than five seconds. Try at the end of the service. It's just, ooh, it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's just so intimate. But in the age to come, those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will have such a deep, intimate relationship with God that the, the only way to describe it properly is we will see him face to face. We'll be known as we are known. Known even as I'm fully known. Well, how well does Jesus know you now? He knows everything. He knows what your first word was, and he already knows what your last word will be. He knows what you dreamed last night, and he knows what you daydream about for the future. He knows what your most shameful secret is, and he knows what you think about your colleagues. And if you trust in Jesus, one day you will know God as fully as he knows you. Wow. Now, two key things to stop us misunderstanding before we apply this. Firstly, Paul is not saying that what we know of God now through people exercising their gifts to teach us is wrong or worthless. What we learn of God in heaven will not contradict what we learn of God through his word, the Bible. He's just saying it will be so much deeper and richer that even the insights of the apostle Paul will one day seem childlike and hazy. Secondly, nor is he saying it's a waste of time to pursue the knowledge of God now. I mean, why bother studying the Bible if you never get past the seven times table? I mean, why bother? No, there is nothing so soul-satisfying and joy-giving as to know God now. God gave us the gifts of prophecy and knowledge and preaching and teaching so that we would press in to know him as fully as we can in this age. The point, though, is the deepest insight and the greatest joy you've experienced knowing God now is nothing compared with what is to come. It's not meant to devalue what you can find out about God now, but to excite you about what is to come. Now his point is, look, don't take pride in the gifts God's given you to understand his word. And don't envy those who've got those gifts or have greater gifts. 
Because compared to the full, rich reality of God, even the most gifted Christian teachers just scratching the surface, glimpsing in the half-light. And as ever, of course, Paul's point in this chapter is about love. He says, look, pursue love because unlike gifts, it will endure and matter in eternity. Those word gifts you're squabbling over now, they're going to go. They'll be as useful in heaven as a stabilizers are on a bicycle once you've learned. It's just worthless. But love, love is the currency of heaven. Love will not fade. So thirdly, love is greater even than faith or hope. Verse 13, the final verse takes us back to love and its endurance explicitly. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now how annoying of Paul, just as you're getting ready for the sermon to end, he introduces two new points. I mean, seriously, faith and hope, what? Come on, Paul, we've got enough to get on with here. Why does he bring them in? Well, faith, hope, and love are the three cardinal virtues of the Christian life. They crop up again and again through the New Testament. Uh, Colossians 1, Galatians 5, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Peter 1. The particular, particularly obvious places, I guess. They're the Christian fundamentals. And I think he's saying, look, unlike gifts, all of those will carry on into the new creation. They'll look different, but they will continue. So faith will be different in heaven when we can see God. But we will still trust him and obey him. So we'll, in that sense, exercise faith. And, and we will still have hope in heaven that tomorrow will be even better than today, even if the hope looks different. But love is greater even than faith and hope. Love is supreme. Why? Well, he, he doesn't tell us here, but he's told us enough. The Bible tells us love is central to the character of God. I think that's the first thing. We've seen that already. The Bible never says God is faith or God is hope. But it does tell us that God is love. 1 John 4 declares that. God is love. Love is in God as light is in the sun. And so for us to love is to imitate God. And the more that we love, the more we become like God. It's possible to imagine a community, a church, where people have enormous faith, unshakable hope in the face of suffering, and profound knowledge of the truth. And yet for a community like that to still be cold, cliquey, and even unpleasant. But a community marked by love, by deep, rich, Bible-shaped love for each other, that's a community you want to be part of. Imagine being part of a community where every other person was as committed to your needs as their own. Where every other person spent time thinking and praying about how they might be a blessing to you. Where every other person loved you every bit as much as they loved themselves. How would you describe a community like that? It's no wonder that the great theologian Jonathan Edwards said it's not gifts but love that makes the church like heaven he wrote an entire book actually Jonathan Edwards on 1 Corinthians 13 called Charity and Its Fruits it's got a picture of him looking particularly grumpy and severe on the cover but, um, but there we go it's a phenomenally deep rich book and the final chapter is all about heaven because he says this is what the chapter is pointing us towards he says heaven the new creation will be a world of love 
And it will be like that because God is the fountain of love and he will be there and there will be nothing to hinder our love and the overflow of his fountain. In other words, in heaven, you will be perfectly loving and everybody else will be perfectly lovable. What an extraordinary thought. Not only will your capacity to love grow, but other people will be a lot less annoying. They won't be annoying at all. They'll be easy to love. I mean, it's extraordinary thought. Both you become more loving and they become more lovable. And that's why heaven will be truly wonderful. So pursue love. That's, a, that's actually Paul's conclusion. If you drift over into chapter 14, follow the way of love. Actually, follows a very weak translation. The word follow is, actually, is the word Paul uses to describe his persecution, chasing down to kill Christians. It's a, it's a sort of desperate pursuit. Saying, pursue love with everything you've got. So many of the other things that you and I treasure and pursue and fight for and, and work for in this world, we will leave in the departure lounge. But love will come with us into eternity. And love will keep growing and become more bright and brilliant and pure. When I grow in faith or in hope or in knowledge, I become more mature as a Christian. And I am better able to serve others when I do so. But it's only when I grow in love that I will use those gifts in a way which genuinely benefits other people. It's only when I grow in love that I become more like God rather than just more knowledgeable about God. If if we as a church are full of gifted people, then visitors might see impressive things and say, wow. But if we as a church are full of love, then people might look in and see something of God. As Francis Schaeffer put it, love is the ultimate apologetic. In other words, there is no stronger argument for the truth of Christianity than the inexplicably glorious love that you sometimes see in a church. So pray for greater love. Pray for the Spirit to expose the areas of your heart where your your love for yourself, your reputation and your needs is just too great. Pray that instead you would learn to love other people more and then work at loving people. Pray for love and work at love. Make decisions that don't serve comfort and self-protection. Don't turn away from those who are awkward or draining or just thoroughly unimpressive. I'm not saying burn yourself out and be used by others, but given different capacities and opportunities and limitations, seek to grow in Christ-like love. That's what Paul calls us to in this chapter. Seek to grow in a love which is expansive and costly and unfailing. we, We live in a city where we're all encouraged to protect yourself and prioritize your well-being And God's word says, no, don't protect yourself and prioritize self-well-being. Commit to sacrificing yourself and being a blessing to others. And as we do that, as we do that, we will create a community which is a taste of heaven. 
where the warm sunshine of heavenly love pierces the coldness of a selfish world. And that will be a beautiful thing. So you and I, we are shaped by our culture more than we realize. And 1 Corinthians 13 has been the Holy Spirit's call for us to be shaped by a different vision of life. A radical, beautiful, supernatural one. And each of us face the question as we get to the end of this chapter. Will I hear it, close it, and move on? Or will I die to self and follow Jesus? Will I do my part to make this church a place where the Jesus who poured himself out in love for us is not only praised as our saviour, but also followed as our example of love. Let me pray. Our Lord God, these are extraordinary, deep, rich words. They are beautiful to read and they are painful to read. And Father, we pray that where we feel convicted of our failings, we would turn to the cross and receive your forgiveness. Where we feel shallow and in need of help, we would find in your spirit limitless reserves. And where we feel the pull of the world and, and, and the desire to, to protect ourselves and to live for number one, we pray that you would open our eyes to see how rich and beautiful this vision is. And Lord God, we pray that as a church, whatever else we're known for, we might be known as a place where people are loved. For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen.